The scripture reading for this morning is Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've been making our way through Joel, and uh, just a quick recap of what Joel is about. Remember, uh, we don't know a whole lot about Joel, nor do we know a whole lot about when Joel was written. Commentators uh, believe that he either wrote before the exile of Judah, around 586 B.C., so somewhere in the maybe 700s B.C., or he wrote shortly after the exile. Um, Either way, it's not super critical because uh, he doesn't directly tie necessarily his message to, um, to the exile. His point in writing is that God will bring up a plague, and, and we believe it's a literal locust plague that God will bring to Judah. He will bring that in order to wake them up from their sin, from their disobedience, from their disregard of who he is, and call them to himself in repentance. And that that locust plague ultimately pointed to a greater day of judgment that is to come. And here's where, if it was written before the exile, you could say that actual locust plague pointed to the uh, coming invasion of the Babylonians and also to the great and dreadful day of the Lord that is to come that we read about, for instance, in the book of Revelation at the end of time with Jesus' return. Or if it's post-exilic, if it's after the exile, it's a locust plague that points ultimately to that great and dreadful or great and awesome day of the Lord that is to come. So that gives you kind of an idea of uh, what, is, what is going on in Joel. Um, so, so here we are making a, a pivot, and it would be tempting to say um, of the people of Judah, you know, they brought that calamity on themselves. God brought this locust plague, but he brought it in response to their sin, to their rebellion, right? It's one thing to have suffering happen in your life, to experience, you know, locust years, lost years, as a result of suffering that was thrust upon you, something outside of you, not the result of something that you did, but something that was done to you, or just the reality of, of life in a fallen and broken world. It's another thing entirely to know that the locust years were of your own doing and came because of disregard for the God who had made you and called you to be his own. Such was the plight of the people of Judah. God had created them, not 
simply as individual human beings, but he had created them as a people. He had called them into being. He had chosen them entirely by grace. And then he had redeemed them. He had redeemed them from Egypt, from bondage in Egypt. He had given them the land as their inheritance. He had promised protection from surrounding nations. He had given them his law so they could know how to worship him and walk before him. He had had assured them that he loved them just because he loved them, not because of anything in them, but simply because he's a God of love and he set his love and his favor upon them. And they decided that they didn't care. Gods that they could see, lowercase g, right? Gods that they could fashion with their own hands. The gods of the other nations were more appealing to them than the, the God, capital G, that they couldn't see, who had loved them and who had rescued them. So they went off and did their own thing. They, they paid him lip service. Their hearts were far from him. And so God brought the locust years. He called them to wake up, and then he brought that kind of devastation in order to bring them to their senses so that in their brokenness, they would call out to him for forgiveness. Now, you might be tempted to think forgiveness is the most that they could hope for. I mean, just the fact that God would forgive them is incredible. Not being consumed by God's judgment, but delivered through it, that would be a win, right? But to those people, God said, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. I will restore. I will bring a recompense that's beyond your imagining for the years that were lost. A consolation on the other side of the suffering that far exceeds the desolation that you experienced. In fact, not merely a consolation, even more than a consolation, a restoration. God's promising that to these people, the people who we might be tempted to say brought it all on themselves. The passage that we're looking at this morning tells us that God goes beyond even restoration to call them to participate in his work to take the gospel to the nations. What does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with me? You might feel very much the same as the people of Joel may have felt. They may have been thinking, you know, we brought this on ourselves. And you may be thinking, you know, I brought this on myself. These years that the locusts have eaten, the suffering that I've experienced, the the consequences that I'm experiencing even now, the lost years are my own doing. I've sinned too much. Too much has been lost. Too many years have been wasted. Too much damage has been done. God forgave me because God is a God who forgives, and I thank God for that. But I've got to keep my expectations in check. Forgiveness, yes, by grace. But restoration? A purpose for me in his work to save the world? No way. But as crazy as it sounds, God doesn't intend for his people to settle for forgiveness. And I use that word settle almost like How can we even use the word settle when it comes to the forgiveness of God? But the fact that God offers us so much more means that by implication, we needn't settle even with his forgiveness that is beyond our imagining. 
He doesn't just forgive, he restores. We saw that last week. And he doesn't just forgive and set us aside. He gives us a voice. He gives us the ability to declare his salvation to the world. And that's what we see in verses 28 through 32. In this passage that foretells the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, a day that's been commemorated throughout the church uh, and we celebrated last Sunday. So three things that I hope we'll see this morning about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The first is that the outpouring of the Spirit fulfills an Old Testament longing and not Joel's. The outpouring of the Spirit fulfills an Old Testament longing. Second, that the outpouring of the Spirit is the evidence that Jesus reigns. Is the evidence that the resurrected Jesus reigns. And then third, that the outpouring of the Spirit empowers us for ministry. It empowers all God's children for ministry. So those are the three things we're going to look at this morning, but first let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. Lord, we thank you for Joel. It's a hard book, but you've preserved it for us. It's part of your holy scripture, and we have it, and your spirit is present, and this is suitable. It's, 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 it's needed. It's necessary for our upbuilding as we seek to follow you. So we pray that by your spirit, you'll be working in our hearts to apply this portion of your word to us, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the outpouring of the Spirit fulfills an Old Testament longing. There's a a thread that can be stretched or a line that can be drawn from Moses through Joel to Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So in Numbers chapter 11, Moses. Moses was leading God's people through the wilderness, and he was overwhelmed. The people were grumbling. We've had enough manna already. And, and, you know, Moses is crying out to God, and God said, listen, I want you to select uh, 70 of the elders from among the people, and I want you to bring them to the tent of meeting, because what I'm going to do there is I'm going to give some of the Holy Spirit that I've given to you, I'm going to put that on them so they can come alongside and help you lead. You've got this burden of speaking for me to the people for their good, for their benefit, and it's overwhelming, and so I'm bringing you the opportunity to pour out some of my Spirit on them as well. So that happens, these elders gather at the tent of meeting, and, and God puts some of the Spirit on them, and they begin to prophesy. Now, it's important to remember how the Spirit of God operated in the Old Testament as compared to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you primarily see the Spirit of God being put on specific people in order to fulfill a specific role or accomplish a specific task. It's a mystery, you know, how the, uh, how, how the person of the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament Old Testament compared to New, Um, but we know that, that when you go through the Old Testament, you see examples of the Spirit of God being put on certain people to accomplish a particular task or fulfill a particular role. So that's what was happening. The Spirit was being put on these elders. However, two of those elders weren't at the tent of meeting. I don't know if they didn't get the memo, you know, they were just running a little bit late, you know, the manna was tasting really good that morning, they just kept, I don't know, but they weren't there, and the Holy Spirit got put on them anyway, even though they weren't at the tent of meeting. So they started prophesying, 
And, you know, a couple really, you know, attentive aides, helpers of uh, Moses, heard them prophesying, put two and two together, realized they weren't at the tent of meeting, and said, whoa, 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 time out. And they went to Moses, and they told him, and they're like, Moses, you got to make him stop. And Joshua, you're right, Joshua, Moses' right-hand man, said, Moses, they shouldn't be prophesying. They weren't at the tent of meeting. This can't be right. And that's where Moses prays, expresses a longing to God in front of these people. In Numbers 11, verse 29, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them all. Now, fast forward 700 years, day of Pentecost. Jesus has ascended to heaven. Um, the, the disciples are in Jerusalem. They're waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in obedience to Jesus. Jesus had told them to do that. Again, it's the day of Pentecost, one of three major Jewish festivals. This one, the day of Pentecost that commemorates the Passover, the day in which, you know, that 10th plague in Egypt when the... Um, when the people of Israel were to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the, the, um, the, 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 the spirit, the destroying spirit would pass over, uh, all the firstborn of Israel would not die, but the firstborn of Egypt would, right? The day of Pentecost commemorates the Passover. It's one of the three feast days. Every Jewish man was to return to Jerusalem from the diaspora. So, you, you know, coming back to the exile again, God sent the nations, his people, I'm sorry, Judah, Israel, out into the nations. Not all of them returned to Jerusalem. That was part of God's brilliant strategy to ultimately take the, the gospel to the nations because they would form synagogues in all these places. Where did the Apostle Paul go first on his missionary journeys? To the synagogues. But anyway, coming back to the day of Pentecost, all these Jewish men who spoke the languages of the lands that they were in were to return to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And so there are the disciples, they're in the upper room, they're waiting for the outpouring of the Spirit, which Jesus told them to be waiting for. And here's what we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided, uh, as, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the other tongues are the other languages of the people around them. People were hearing the gospel, the truth concerning God, as these men prophesied in the sense of speaking concerning God to the people for their welfare. They were hearing it in their own language. Now, what was going on? Some people said they're drunk. And Peter stood up and said, no, this is Joel chapter 2. This is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. This is the day in which the Spirit is being point, poured out. Now, in between Peter and Moses stands Joel. Joel. O. Palmer Robertson, in his commentary on Joel, says this. Joel seizes the patriarch Moses with one hand and the apostle Peter with the other, bringing the two together. And so there's, there's Moses, perhaps 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. And there's Joel, perhaps 700 years before the birth of Christ. And then there's Peter on the day of Pentecost, 
and Joel grabbing Moses by the hand and Peter by the hand in order to tie the two together. God is promising through Joel that Moses' prayer will be answered. And Peter's interpreting Joel's prophecy as the point at which the answer is given. Now, what are the implications of that for us? Can't spend a lot of time here, but please note two things. First of all, note that Moses is praying for all God's people. Moses is praying. He's longing that all of God's people experience the blessing of the Spirit of God resting upon them so that they can speak God's words to other people for their benefit. Would you consider praying for Grace Church that way? Moses is praying that God's people will know God intimately and speak his words with clarity. What a great thing to be praying for one another. Would you do that? Would you begin committing yourself to pray for Grace Church, that all of us would know God intimately and speak for him, of him, from his word with clarity. But second, note God's timeline. God, God's prayer, his answer to Moses' prayer was yes, but not according to Moses' timeline. What that means then is that Moses, without realizing it, was praying for us. Without realizing it, Moses was praying for us. That's Peter's interpretation of Joel and consequently of Moses. Moses was praying that God's spirit would be on all of God's people. That happened on the day of Pentecost, which means that everyone who puts their hope in Jesus Christ and receives the spirit of God is the answer to Moses' prayer. What a remarkable thing. To, I mean, it just blew me away this week that Moses, without realizing it, was praying for us. Every believer from Pentecost on is an answer to Moses' prayer. But second, the outpouring of the Spirit is proof that Jesus reigns. Now, we have to interpret Joel and every Old Testament prophecy in light of what the New Testament says about it. So we have to interpret Joel 2:28 to 32 in light of, in particular, Joel 2:28 and 29, in light of what Peter says about Joel 2:28 and 29. This is the principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture. It's something that we really hold to. Wherever there's a passage of Scripture that's hard for us to understand, we look to other passages of Scripture that bring clarity and understanding and interpretation to those hard passages of Scripture. So when we go to Joel 2, 28 to 29, we cannot bypass what Peter says. We have to lean on what Peter says in order to understand what's going on in Joel chapter 2. And what Peter goes on to say in the rest of Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, this first Christian sermon, if you will, what Peter goes on to say is that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is proof that Jesus reigns. If you were to read Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36, which I hope you will go back and read all of Acts chapter 2 later today, what Peter says in that passage in 22 through 36 is that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and now reigns. And he says, David, King David, testified to that fact in Psalm 110. 
that upon his ascension, Jesus received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to Jesus. That's what Paul or Peter saying in Acts chapter 2. And then Jesus is the one who poured out the Spirit at Pentecost. So then we have to ask, what are the implications for Joel 2, verses 30 to 32? When we come back to that passage, what does it mean that the, that the Spirit that was poured out, that ultimately the one whom Joel was pointing to was Jesus? What does that mean for Joel 2, 30 to 32? And what does that mean for us today? What that means is that 2.30 through 32 of Joel awaits its fulfillment. There's this gap. I don't know if you have this in your Bible, but, you know, verse 28 through 29, it's like they're all single space lines. And then there's gap. It looks like it's double space right after, in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And then verse 30 picks up. Does anybody have that gap? Right? That gap is the age we're living in right now. Between Jesus' first coming and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, and the great and awesome day of the Lord that is coming when verses 30 through 32 are finally fulfilled, that's the age in which we live right now. And Jesus hinted at that throughout his ministry. There's a passage in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. It's, it's always amazing to, to be reminded of what's happening here. Uh, you don't see it unless you go back and read the cross-reference and see that Jesus was quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. But let me just take us back to Luke 4 real quick and remind us. So in Luke 4, verse 16, Jesus has come to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So he's in there. It was the custom for someone to read from, you know, one of the scrolls from uh, what we call the Old Testament. And on that day, he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. All right. It wasn't like, oh, this guy looks like he would be really good at reading Isaiah. So they gave him Isaiah. It was just in God's providence the day that Isaiah was to be read. And Jesus shows up. The scroll that contained the book of Isaiah was given to him. And Jesus unrolled it and found the place where it was written. And this is what we read in verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Again, this is Isaiah, 700, 800 years before Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Rolled back the scroll, rolled it up, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Everyone in the synagogue was looking at Jesus. What is this itinerant preacher going to say to us now? And in verse 32, I'm sorry, verse 21, Jesus said this. He began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. However, if you've read Isaiah chapter 61, you know that Jesus left something off. He left off a very important line. And the line is, the day of vengeance of our God. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. See, Isaiah and all the prophets, Joel, I'm sure, thought that those things were going to happen at the same time. The judgment of God was going to come upon the nations, that great and dreadful day of the Lord, and the blessings were going to fall on God's people. And it was going to happen at the same time. And Jesus there in Luke chapter 4, 
And then reading Isaiah 61 was giving a major clue. You don't, I don't know if they got it. They, I'm sure they didn't get it. Why, why did he leave off the day of vengeance of our God? And then you look at some of, other, you know, of Jesus' other teaching. Mark chapter 13 is a great example where Jesus is foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem. It would happen in AD 70. The temple would be destroyed. The abomination that causes desolation would be in the holy place in the temple. You read that and you're, like, you're tracking. You know, now we can look back and say, wow, okay, that happened, AD 70. But then there's things that he says after that that are pointing beyond that to the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So what is this age in which we live? What do we call that space between, you know, back in Joel chapter 2, between verse 29 and verse 30? And, and Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says this, God says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, Paul says, now is the favorable time now is the day of salvation. There's a sense in which the day of the Lord has come. With the, with the coming of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the blessings of the day of the Lord are beginning to be experienced now by God's people. There's an already to the day of the Lord. There's an already to the kingdom of God. And there is a not yet to the day of the Lord, the day in which Jesus returns to judge. And so the day that is verses 30 through 32 is coming. The day that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that people turn to Jesus Christ for their salvation has come. And this is the age in which the gospel goes forth to the nations. This is the age in which the Great Commission is to take place. This is the age in which God's people have an opportunity as the sinful people that we are to live for his glory. Before we live for his glory unencumbered by sin. This is the day. This is the age. And so that leads to the third point. The third point is the outpouring of the Spirit means we have power to participate in Christ's saving work. The outpouring of the Spirit means we have power to participate in Christ's saving work. According to Joel, looking back at Joel verses 28 to, and 29, all God's people are prophets. Right? Let's, let's look at it. 2, 28, and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will put on my spirit. The, 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 pour out my spirit. The, the picture here, again, is of all God's people. All those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Not just the elders, not just a select few, and not just for a brief moment to fulfill a specific purpose or a specific task, but all those who look to Jesus Christ for their salvation will receive not just the Spirit on them, but the Spirit in them. This outpouring, this indwelling that the rest of Scripture in the, in the New Testament points us to. Such that all have the opportunity to speak for God. Now, it would be so easy to get tripped up at this point to say, okay, does that mean then that we can actually, you know, speak God's word with the same kind of authority as Scripture? You know, are, are we able to say, thus saith the Lord, in a way that builds on or contradicts or, or you know, the, the very word of God? Is, is that what Joel's telling us? And then is Joel saying, does that mean that we're, we're supposed to have dreams that can be interpreted or visions to be interpreted or, you know, 
what exactly is happening here. It would be very easy to get distracted by these questions and forget the fundamental point. Not that those questions aren't important, but forget the fundamental point of what Moses was praying for and what Peter says has been fulfilled. Here's Moses saying, oh, that all of God's people would have the spirit so they could be able to speak for God to the people for each other's benefit. And Peter is saying concerning this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, these are people proclaiming the mighty works of God, preaching the gospel in the tongues or in the languages of those around them in this phenomenological way that in the end is still people speaking for God concerning who God is. All right, this, this is the fundamental point. We, we, we can't get lost in the other questions concerning vision and prophecy and dreams and such and, and miss what Moses is praying for, what Joel fundamentally is prophesying as an answer to Moses' prayer, and what Peter explains is going on. That's the thing we can't miss. Now, those other questions are good questions, and I don't have time to do them this morning. That feels like a cop-out, all right? I, I want to recommend a book and an article and an opportunity to talk about this more at any point. Um, and, you know, apologies to Catherine and to Eric for forgetting to give you a book recommendation in time to have it in the bulletin. One of these days, I will figure this out. Um, but the, yeah, somebody's laughing like, no, that, is that Catherine? Yeah. <clears throat> the, uh, the, the book is simply titled The Holy Spirit. It is by Sinclair Ferguson. It's in a theology series that's really excellent, the Contours of Christian Theology series. But if you're going to pick up a book on the Holy Spirit, that's the one that I would urge you to pick up and read, The Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. The article that I'm going to, and the book, a link to the book and a link to this article um, is, uh, will be in the Grace Weekly that goes out on Tuesday, and it'll also be linked in the study guide. Eric, I know you're watching. Please make sure that's in the study guide for the growth groups on uh, on that goes out tomorrow. The, the name of the article can be found at the Gospel Coalition website. It's simply titled, Why I Am a Cessationist. All right? So there's a $3,000 theological word that is worthy of being unpacked as well. But simply because of, you know, where we are right now in the sermon, what I want to encourage you to do is obviously pick up the book and read it. But I know that that's a big ask because I give you like a book recommendation every other week. And you might be getting frustrated with book recommendations by now. But the article's short and very helpful. and encourage you to read it. And again, I'd love to talk with you about it. Because that, those, that book, that article, take us to Scripture and help us understand what it means to be God's people in this day and age who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. No less than any of, you know, the, the, the people, the disciples on the day of Pentecost were indwelt by the Spirit of God. But what it looks like for us to walk by the Spirit today. All right, so that's, that's that. End of the excursus, stepping out of the parentheses, whatever we want to call it. The main thing I want you to see that this is the day and the age in which, like the disciples, on the day of Pentecost... We're given power by God to proclaim the gospel to the nations. So too we have the spirit of God and are given by the power of God to proclaim the gospel to the nations. The, the final prophetic utterance of God is contained in the scripture. We have a prophetic, lowercase p, function and that we're able to speak from the word of God to people 
in order to point them to Jesus. And we're given the Spirit of God to assist us in doing that. And according to Paul, another New Testament reference back to Joel chapter 2, according to Paul, we have a role to play in all this. Joel 2 verse 32, take a look at it with me real quick. Joel 2.32 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that last phrase, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 10. He quotes it directly in Romans chapter 10 verse 13. In speaking of not just Jews, but Gentiles, being those who receive the gospel and the opportunity for salvation, in that context, Paul says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he goes on to say, but how will they know unless someone tells them? Unless someone heralds, preaches, but the word simply means heralds the gospel to them. In other words, Paul would say to us, that promise in Joel, that that prophecy, that anticipation, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in this day in which we live, this day between the already and the not yet of of the kingdom of God, of the day of the Lord, we're called to participate by heralding the good news to those around us. Now, you may say, where do I begin? I heard some great advice from a guy in this church who would not want me to single him out, so I won't. But he had had some great advice. He talked about something, a practice that he's begun to implement in his own life. He said, you know, every day I pray that God will bring two people across my path that I, I just have a sense God is calling me to share something of the gospel, to speak something concerning Jesus to them in that moment. Two people every day. And he talked about how God has been faithful to answer that prayer. What if you started praying that way? I hear your knees knocking already. It's, it's audible. But remember, you have the Spirit of God. You have the opportunity to never perfectly, you know, praise God that God is the one who does the saving. And it's never about the ability, you know, our own ability to, to reason out the airtight argument as if there were an airtight argument. But we have the opportunity to point people to Jesus, to share something of the hope that is within us, God has given us the Spirit of God not only to do that, but to be able to discern when it needs to be done. So what if we were to seek to participate in what the third person of the Trinity seeks to do through us by praying, God, would you help me discern who are the two people perhaps this very day that you're calling me to rely on your strength and to speak maybe very imperfectly and with a shaking voice something of who Jesus is and the good news of his gospel. There's a, there's a take home, right? This is amazing prophecy. Great things we've been talking about this morning. You know, I hope that you're blown away just by the continuity of scripture. You know, just the fact that Moses was, was praying and not, not realizing it, but ultimately praying for us when he prayed for the outpouring of the spirit. But let your take home from that be that you begin to pray for the brothers and sisters who are around you for the little ones who are among us, for the generations perhaps to come that we call Grace Church home, should the Lord tarry, that we would be able to know God intimately and speak his words with clarity. And then you think about this amazing fact that the Spirit of God is poured out so that we, in some sense, are able to speak the gospel to other people. Would you 
Would you pray, knowing that the Spirit of God indwells you, would you pray that God would bring a couple people across your path each day in which you just have a sense, man, this is a moment in which God's calling me to share something of the truth of who Jesus is. Let's just see what happens. Wouldn't it be be amazing for God to begin to use, you know, weak and faltering people like us to spread the good news of the gospel? The good news ultimately that we must share with our neighbors and friends and family and complete strangers that we don't know is that for those who put their trust in Jesus for their salvation, that great and dreadful day of the Lord, the verses 30 through 32 stuff, has passed The darkness that Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2 fell on Jesus in our place. When darkness covered the land while Jesus was on the cross from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that darkness was symbolic. It pointed to, it gave reference to the reality that in that moment on the cross, God had turned his face away, as it were, from Jesus. That was when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? to be forsaken by God, to know nothing of his love and grace and favor, to only know him in his wrath and judgment upon sin. In that moment, Jesus experienced that in your place. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, the great and dreadful day of the Lord has passed. The only thing left to come is more blessing. That's why, you know, Tim Keller was one of my um, spiritual heroes. One of the things that he said, and there's so many great quotes from Tim Keller over the years. But Tim Keller, not long before his death, said the worst thing that can happen to a Christian when they die is that their life becomes infinitely better. It's true. It's true. The darkness prophesied by Joel fell on Jesus in our place. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit fulfills an Old Testament longing. The outpouring of the Spirit is the evidence that Jesus reigns. The outpouring of the Spirit empowers us for ministry. Will you tell of the wonderful works of God before the day that is to come? You have the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to be faithful in following you. Lord, help us to recognize that that entails looking for opportunities, praying for discernment to know Who is the person or the people each day that you're calling us to speak a word of encouragement, if it's our brothers and sisters here at Grace or in another place, a word of of comfort, or among those who don't yet know you, Lord, a word of hope that points to the reality of the gospel and the hope that we have in you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.